Welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast, everyone, and thanks for tuning in and spending some time today uh, listening to a casual conversation over a cup of coffee. Uh, this show is really all about exploring and diving into deep and meaningful and important questions about life uh, as human beings, exploring our journey of faith together as, as a community. And today on the show, I've got Javin Bernakovich joining me again. Javin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast again. Ben, it's such a pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, you bet. So this is the third time you've been on Six Ways from Sunday. If anyone out there uh, hasn't heard the other two uh, episodes featuring Javin, I invite people to go and check those out. Just search through our our library of episodes and you'll see Javin's name right in the, the episode title. And both of those other two conversations were fantastic. Now, Javin, for anyone who maybe doesn't know about the work that you do, um, why don't you give us just a, a really quick synopsis of uh, the, the work that you do and, uh, and kind of why you're, you're here today? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So my name is Javon Bernakovich, and I own and operate a company called All Points Design, allpointsdesign.ca. And I work in two major tributaries uh, in my work. I've got land design where I work with clients, homesteaders, farmers, wannabes, anybody who's who's on a piece of land and wants to use or be more productive in that piece of land. We help to diagnose themselves as clients, the land and the regulatory climate that they live in to find the sweet spot. Where's where's the sweet spot for the plants that can grow there, the animals that they can grow there, the food systems, the energy systems? How can we make the best use of the land, the people, and generally this this time, this epoch we're in? So that's that's the land design, and I've worked on large acres um, and areas up to 3,000 acres and down to backyard lots for uh, for urbanites. And then on the other side, <clears throat> which has been really interesting over the last six, seven years, I have this life design process where I can work with and evaluate people's values to make decisions based upon those values to take a look at their gifts, their natural gifts, their zones of brilliance. Where are they coming alive? Where can they apply themselves in business, do business design and business evaluation uh, and how to roll that out? And then on the very back end of that, which ends up becoming a lot more (laughs) sprinkled throughout the work is we all experience personal resistance when we come up to life, to experiences, to objectives. And having a meaningful way to work with those uh, objectives and and work with those obstacles is really important. So I have a number of tools in my tool belt where we address personal resistance, fear, doubt, things of that nature, which segues nicely into this conversation. I'd I'd reached out to Ben for, a, I think it was a technical question. I think it was something about um, editing or filmmaking or something to that effect. Oh, it's podcasting. That's what it was. I was redoing the website and uh, wanted to list out the, the recent facing fire episode we did and i said you know it might be an interesting time to do a podcast i've been having a lot of conversations about fear and about interacting with fear during this time mm. because i've i've had clients on both sides call up i've had friends call up i've got lots of stories to play with today and there's kind of been this really interesting approach uh, internationally where either absolutely we should respond in fear absolutely we should respond without fear Absolutely, we should respond in between. And I think it's that uh, binary disposition, that that specific domain, we have to do it in one way, which has been, I think, largely problematic to the people and the clients in my life. And I thought it might might make for a good conversation. 
Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Javin. I so, I so appreciate you making the time today um, to make yourself available and, and come on to talk about this. So over the last five or six weeks on this show, we have had a lot of conversation about the COVID uh, epidemic. And Robin and I have had some fantastic discussion about some of the parallels between uh, some of the biblical stories that we typically explore at this time in the calendar year around, you know, leading up to Easter and Holy Week. And we have all these, um, these uh, stories that are fundamental pillars of the Christian faith and kind of uh, offering lessons for us uh, f- for how we can live our lives today. And in the midst of all that, we're going through this these crazy times. And so there's been there's been so much to explore and to unpack and um, to learn from some of these uh, faith stories and then also to just try to offer some encouragement and some meaningful, valuable, uh, advice that can apply to people's lives today. Uh, we also had a, a, a guest on last week, um, Tammy, who is a psychologist in Pinoca here in central Alberta. And she had some fantastic advice for people who are coping with fear or with anxiety or just with the general uncertainty of what the future is going to look like, how this uh, the rest of this home isolation period that we're in right now is going to unfold. Uh, there's a lot of people dealing with a lot of difficult things right now with either um, being at home, uh, trying to continue their work and pivoting their small businesses or um, being laid off, uh, not having an income and supporting children that are homeschooling and just so many dynamics that are uh, causing additional stress and strain in people's relationships and general kind of anxiety and fear. Um, so yeah, when you and I got talking about uh, just all the fear that's kind of floating around out there and how we do have a choice and how we respond to crisis in general. And we're in the midst of this global crisis. I think uh, both of us just, yeah, thought it would be a great idea to to hop on a, a call and record it and do another podcast episode. So uh, in your line of work, as a, as in your coaching and in your life design work, Javin, what do you... Uh, pre pre COVID nineteen, what would be sort of your go to um, tool in the toolbox it, for a client or or um, a person who's just generally f- uh, feeling anxious and uncertain about the future, about what direction to go, about something that's causing them stress? Someone who's really grappling with fear in their life, what would be sort of your your tactics and tools? Yeah, I've got a few. Um... <clears throat> Over the last number of years and over my own work with with mental illness and depression, I've gathered quite a number of tools. And it's really important for anybody who's listening to this to realize, first and foremost, that the tools that worked for me may not be the tools that worked for you. But you really need to make sure that you're using the tool properly. Mm. As my father was apt to say as I was working construction with him, and I would look at the hammer stapler as I was putting up tar paper, paper before I put up the vinyl siding, and saying, oh, it doesn't work. And he goes, it's not the tool. It's the tool who's using it. So <laughs> that, uh, that's probably a little bit more saucy than um, than it need be. But when we're using a tool, we really need to understand, are we using the tool correctly? Is it working in the way that it needs to? And if we're getting it wrong, is it an application? Is it a timing thing? Really take on the responsibility to make sure that we're using the tool appropriately. And uh, I hope to pass on whatever I can to anybody who's out there. I really 
in my work, I really try to give away the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you need, whatever I have, I want to give it to you. So that way you can live a, a, a life more in line with your values. So over the last six, seven years, <clears throat> I've been playing with this idea of sovereignty. And in that, I developed and collected and curated these tools of sovereignty. And the sovereign is both the creator and the created. It is both created by its surroundings, but it also has the ability and the knowledge that it can create quite a bit of its surroundings. And so first and foremost, we, we work with this idea that there's my business, your business, and nature and God's business. There are some spheres of business that I don't have control over, and that's everything outside of my business. Hmm. I can only I can only deal with, with me. That's all I've got. And what you're doing, Ben, and what my family's doing and what everybody else is doing is their business. And then there's the nature God business, which I absolutely have no control over. And it's really important to realize when and where you are in your business and when you're in somebody else's business. This originally was was uh, discovered, uh, I discovered this originally with Byron Katie's work, who who had this as an, uh, an off-repeated phrase. And it made really good sense to me that... <clears throat> I think about it like a little medieval kingdom. So here I am, medieval kingdom. I've got my castle. I've got my town. I got my 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 gates, and everything within those walls is my business. Everything in those walls is underneath my direct control because of my attitude, my behaviors, my beliefs. I can do all of it. Mm. Once I step out of those walls, I can no longer affect what you do. I can no longer affect what you say. And when I think I can, when I think I can change you, when I think I can. Um, change the reality of who you are, I suffer. And that's the second tool of sovereignty is that I suffer when I argue with the nature of reality, but only a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> I love that. It, it's, it's powerful to have uh, sort of a visualization of that, that domain or sphere of influence that we have in our lives. Right. And I think I've, I'm somewhat familiar with Byron Katie's work. She's amazing. Definitely highly recommend people to check her out. And I I thought it was her that had said, um, you know, what, I don't, I won't get this quote exactly right, but essentially what, what another human being thinks about me is absolutely none of my business. Yeah. And I don't know if she said that first or if it was Anthony Hopkins, the actor, because I heard that originally from Anthony Hopkins that he said, um, do you ever take a look at reviews or, or anything else? And he goes, no, what other people think of me is none of my business. And that stuck with me for years, that what other people are thinking about me or operating within me or whatever is, is none of my business, literally. We do have an extension of influence outside of, of our business. We can influence people. Uh, you've influenced me greatly in, um, in filmmaking, as have others. But really, there's control and there's influence. And, and my control ends at that boundary of my person and my actions and my behaviors and what I put out into the world. And that's really important at this time because there's a lot of folks who are posting. There's a lot of folks who are sharing information that either A, is not true or questionable uh, in terms of its truth, or B, is fear-inducing. And fear-inducing not for action, fear-inducing not for, oh, that spurred me into action to not touch the hot plate, but Fear-inducing in a way that, oh, I'm going to take my hand away from the stove and never touch or cook with the stove again, (laughs) which is not where we want to go. We don't want to go into a place where we're creating an everlasting perennial sense of fear. And that's where I think this conversation really came about because we were talking a little bit about other individuals and their conversations. And I came across this quote uh, by uh, 
Michael Osterholm, an internationally recognized expert in infectious disease, now is not the time to be scared out of our wits. It's time to be scared into our wits. And there's something about that that really, you know, got stuck in my got stuck in my throat as I was trying to swallow it. That sure we can be propelled into action by that fear, the don't touch that. Uh, but afterwards, we have to dissipate that fear rapidly. Uh, if we keep that as a as a motivational space of action. We transfer all of the reasons why fear exists to stop us from doing something or to put us into a limbic state of mind where we're working with the primary elements of our, our hippocampus and our amygdala, the, the reptilian sense, the limbic sense, that really stops us from have a real sense of, of harm and fear. And if we continue to move on and take decisions out of fear, it, it's really at our peril. Because when we make decisions out of fear, we're making them from a primitive reptilian state, and that can have everlasting effects on us. Mm. That is so true. Now, the to play the devil's advocate a little bit there, Javin, um, do we do we not risk um, if if we were to encourage ourselves and our and each other as a society to to try to uh, rewind that that fear response as as quickly as we can, so that we're not stuck in that that state of anxiety and fear and, and trepidation and reservedness and, you know, got to maintain two meters um, from all loved ones for the rest of our lives. I mean, no, none of us would want that. Do we not risk um, putting ourselves at similar risk to what we're experiencing right now all over again? Like, in other words, not learning from what we've gone through in this pandemic. So going back to that tool of sovereignty, that, when we argue with reality, we suffer. Arguing doesn't necessarily have to be a fear response, doesn't necessarily have to be a fearful response. Arguing can just be, it's raining outside, I don't care, it's not raining, I'm gonna walk out in flip-flops and a t-shirt and it's now dropped 20 degrees and I put myself at risk for some kind of vector or disease. That's an argument, that's, that's arguing with, re with reality. <clears throat> As we take a look at, at COVID-19 and taking a look at its spread and all the rest of it, we're moving to a place where we're getting less and less and less um, cases in a number of areas. New Zealand, as of today, uh, has just said that um, they are, quote unquote, COVID-free. That doesn't mean that the risk of spread is gone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't spread that. It doesn't mean that it's not outside. It doesn't mean that you can't contract it. It just means that the cases that are actively interacting with the medical system currently are close to or at zero, which means that it still exists. And by all intents and purposes, one, we still don't know if you get it and you, you recover from it. If you have the antibodies to resist further infection, it seems like there's been a number of people who've been reinfected Two, there's been a number of mutations spotted, which absolutely would, would mean that we don't have the specific antibodies for so it's really important to realize the world we currently live in and not to argue with it. Uh, I think we've done that for a long time with the ecological destruction of our planet. We've argued that this, that this mm. isn't the case. Oh, absolutely. We've done that. I've done that in my own life when I think, oh, that's not true. And it's like, no, another piece of bread will be totally fine for you. And then your, your pants are too tight the next day. That's, you know, <laughs> there is a cause and effect. And this is the thing that really came to me years ago. And, and a number of writers have, have, 
have said this really well, probably far better than I'm going to say it, and Yuval Harari is one, is that ecology has zero sentimentality. It doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't care about your loved ones. It will transmit regardless of if you love somebody. It, it will transmit to you regardless of if somebody loves you. It will transmit if it has a vector and a point of entry into your body and your system. And that is the reality. So my point is don't lose fear as a response, but do not invest in fear as a point of operation. Do not invest in fear as a state of being to be present in any longer than one need to, to come out of danger. And the danger is this is a real pandemic. Um, this exists. And if you step outside, you put yourself at risk currently. How you step outside, who you interact with puts you at further or less risk, all depending. But mm. there is risk there. There's also risks that I might trip and fall when I go out the door. But generally, when I was a kid, I learned how to walk and I learned what was important and I learned inner ear balance. Some people don't learn that and they actively have to create systems and processes to be aware. But a system and a process is in a state of fear. It isn't a state of fear to be operating from. And the real problem here, Ben, is that when we operate from a place of fear, we are incapacitated to use our rational mind. Hmm. And I think we can see that in the hoard, hoarding purchasing that we've seen the world over. Uh, people buying you know, seemingly innocuous items like toilet paper or otherwise. And buying because I need to take care of myself. What can I get? Look, I'll need that for sure. And, hmm. and here it comes and now we have it. Except for the fact that Again, we've lost our rational mind. And, and Dan Siegel's brain, hand-brain model is really interesting. It, it takes a look at the hand itself. So if you have your palm facing towards you, uh, the, the base of the arm is the brainstem. And at the base of that, we're really taking a look at um, taking a look at the amygdala, the hippocampus, you know, all of the pieces within our brain that are active when we're in a fight-or-flight response. And if you take your thumb and you put it in, you curl your fingers over top. Now we have uh, the prefrontal cortex, the cortex, our rational brain. And the problem is, is that if we ever flip our lid and those four fingers come up, the prefrontal cortex is helps us calm down, helps us make good decisions, helps us tune into each other. Whereas that limbic area is really, you know, the big emotions live there, the safety radar is there. Mm. And then the brainstem controls breathing, is the protector of, the, uh, of our brain. And so... And if there's a threat, it helps to react to keep us safe, that, that brainstem. So if we, fight, flight, or freeze response. You got her. So if we move into a fear response, it's like raising those four fingers and losing the prefrontal cortex. That means you lose the ability to, to think, you lose the ability to calm down, you lose the ability to make good decisions, and you lose the ability to tune into others. You literally lose that ability because you're operating purely from a limbic and a brainstem conversation. Mm. When you calm back down, when you either rationalize or humanize or do any of the, the number of techniques to calm, to connect, to relate, those four fingers slowly come back down. And when those fingers come back down, we then regain our rational mind. And that's where, when I read that statement that came out from a, an email message, I just thought any support, any co-option of this crisis to, okay, well, we have to do it this way now, is is doing the same thing we've been in under different types of fascist mentalities for eons, which is let's use this crisis. Let's not, you know, quote unquote, waste the crisis mm. and let's put it to good use. And I agree with that to a point. If, if I have to agree with that to say we should all be living in a fear-based response system, I'm going to disagree and strongly. 
Because again, <clears throat> we do not make good decisions when we've lost that prefrontal cortex. True. Um, now we could also, I, I was listening to a podcast recently uh, where someone was talking about this idea that for the last 60 or 70 years, our society has been sort of in a bit of a sleepy, lethargic state of like, the, he called it the great nap. And mm. uh, so I, I'm not sure that he would have been arguing that we need to shift to a state of ever-present fear and operate, uh, have our operating system Im embedded in fear as a, as a, um, ongoing, uh, steady state. But mm -hmm. he was suggesting that we've been just like, we've been, uh, pretty clueless to our impact on the climate, um, and on the ecology of the planet in general, it's time to kind of wake up. And so you could interpret that as it's time to wake up and be, and be scared, or it's time to wake up and be aware and just alert mm. and, uh, and have, have, um, uh, more, a, a greater commitment to understanding the impact that we're having on each other and, and on the planet. And so, I think you and I would both would argue that that that's a healthier place to to live from, and a healthier mm. operating system. But um, we're certainly seeing right now throughout this entire crisis in politics, in the media, that um, that there is a lot of it is based in fear, and I don't know if that's simply because scaring people and triggering that flipping the lid response with sensational headlines is more of a a uh, reliable way to to know you're going to capture people's attention and and so that it just becomes the lowest common denominator of communication uh or if there's some other reason that that fear is such a common tool to use to get people to listen up or to understand what's going on or to to capture people's attention to get people to do what you want them to do to control the masses mm. um you know, a, a scared society is a society that you can kind of shape and mold and steer the way you want them to go, I guess, is a sort of a, um, not a very pleasant way of looking at it, but it's uh, something we've seen played out throughout history, certainly a lot. Um, it's interesting to, to see how different countries and different regions and different political leaders are um, responding to this crisis, given that, like you said, that the virus doesn't care whether you're, you know, Asian or North American or European. It doesn't care what blood type you have. It doesn't care um, what your income is or how well supported you are and whether you're dealing with domestic violence at home or whether you're struggling with addiction or mental health. It just is this microscopic um, creature that's going to try to get into your body and, and multiply, right? So... Um, any differences that we see in how we're responding is just really comes down to our own belief system, our own culture, our own political and uh, worldview. Um, when you talk about, you know, some countries are already starting to see, uh, they're starting to come plateau or even come down the other side of that bell curve. Do you think that in general, our response to the crisis globally has been grossly uh, over-exaggerated, that we've been um, uh, more scared than we needed to be? Or do you think that some of the models 
that are saying that, you know, we're just getting started and this is still going to be millions and millions and millions of people infected is, is more accurate. Like it's, it's, I'm finding that it's really hard to gauge, um, how, how accurately we are responding to this. And if we're, if we're being, taking it seriously enough or taking it being way too scared. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. And it gets to the heart of what I, what I perceive to be the conversation or the, the debate about, which is does fear and being scared need to be the spark or need to be the fire? Does it need to be the inciting incident or does it need to be the entire climax of the conversation? And mm. your question drives at the very heart and it, it drives at something a lot larger, which is can humanity, can Homo sapiens evolve? Can we evolve to make long-term decisions based upon uh, realities and data points and experiences? Or are we more interested in the lines of our thinking before an event has come to pass? So when you talk about fear, sure, it's it's an inevitability and it's an important piece of our lives. It's an important piece of my life. Uh, it, for the most part, does what it's supposed to do and keeps me safe. But I think anybody listening can remember a time, if not several, when fear became the blockage, when the fear of failure, the fear of presenting uh, as, as something odd or an oddity or the fear of being totally oneself has presented a huge block. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get a short-term trained society that is always scared so you can always steer them or a long-term sovereign society that can make choices for themselves based upon good information that has has consciously evolved. And that's where the difference between the two for me really lives. Do we have a scared, domesticated society continuing on the 14,000 years of agriculture? Or do we take a moment when literally the whole planet is feeling something simultaneously? One of the first times, if not the first time in the history of our species, where every single person has knowledge of something and has some idea about it happening at the same time. And do we take that moment to evolve, to say fear is present and is at a level where I'm aware of what my actions might be, but I'm not, I'm going to make the conscious choice not to live in that state. I'm going to make the conscious choice to be more present to the realities of my situation and then change my actions accordingly. Are we going to make that choice? That to me is is really where we're at. And to your point about, you know, what does it look like going forward? Uh, I don't think anybody knows. Nobody knows. This is the thing about risk management. Nobody knows until the the outset of what actually happened. So I always rely on decision making models, which is what's the upside of down and what's the downside of up. What's the upside of uh, self isolating? Well, and and closing down society and closing down uh, portions of the economy. Um, What's the downsides? What's the upsides? Well, the upsides of that is most people are getting a sense of what is essential Mm. for the first Mm -hmm. time in their lives. They're getting a sense of what is necessary. And I've seen a number of tweets that have made me giggle and then made me go, huh. One of them was, isn't it interesting to realize that our economy doesn't work if people only buy what they need? And what of these things added to long-term quality of life? And what have these things added to short-term gratifications? What have these things built up 
longer-term contentment and happiness, and I am not going to be the arbitrator of that. I'm not going to be the judge of that. That's going to be a conversation everyone has to have for themselves. But when I take a look at the last five weeks of having my partner and, and their kids and us all together and the routines we've made up, the 5 p.m. tea in the sun, <laughs> uh, the workouts with them, the f- furthering of a number of projects around the house, sure, uh, I'm, I'm one of four that still has income. I'm one of four that still has an occupation. And yet we would all, we've all said the quality of life has never been higher. The quality of life has never been more rich. We've never had deeper conversations. We've never known each other in a way, in a place that a single visit will just give a little bit of that societal programming and that societal masks we wear and then put them back on as quickly as possible. Hmm. We've really gotten a sense of each other. And we're seeing this internationally, again, going back to that quote, that we're seeing a lot of these societies that were what's the next thing, what's the quick thing, what's the production schedule, et cetera, et cetera. We're seeing them ramp back. We're seeing them throttle back and we're seeing quality of life outside of sustained fear that is largely being propagated as opposed to here's a virus, here's the issues with it. You need to be careful about this. Beyond that, without with, without you know taking in, or pardon, without excluding the realities of it, once that's taken care of, they're actually having bigger, better, more quality of life lives. Now, on the other side of this, and, and I'd be remiss not to go into it um, uh, talking about this. On the other side of this, we have um, countries with extreme poverty or extreme marginal populations like India, mm-hmm. where any sort of lockdown is creating, um, you know, the what was it, the, the World Food Programme is forecasting somewhere between 130 and 256 million people that are going to be starving within this year because of mm-hmm. the way that we have operated our economy. And that's really important to realize that that's actually because of how we've operated the world and the economy, not COVID. COVID hasn't created this. COVID has shone a light. COVID has you know, taken away the fogginess like you were talking about to see the realities of, of the world we live in, which is that it's not based about around people. It's based around... Uh, a corporate capital system of economics where for some reason we can bail out multi-billion dollar companies and what did i read the other day the hyper wealthy have added something like 308 billion more dollars to their coffers by the end of this and yet individuals people are still suffering and if not suffering more because of the way the system was set up Mm -hmm. the entire system is predicated on continual growth year over year and without that growth there's no profitability right which is a aberration in nature it's an aberration in the universe it doesn't doesn't (laughs) exist in nature somehow the human society said everything we've observed in the known universe doesn't do this and we've decided to see if we can make it work Mm -hmm. like it's a level of hubris that i'm sure the cosmos laughs at because The thing that we know for certain is entropy. Entropy does exist, and entropy takes things that are at a complex state of of organization and rapidly wants them to be in a lower state of organization. Things degrade. Mm -hmm. Soil from the highlands moves down into the oceans. And yet we believe that not only can we stop the flow of entropy, which natural cycles do to a certain extent, and they keep energy cycling in place as long as possible, but we can have 
coastal vegetation at the top of Mount Everest, ignoring all of the ecological and elemental factors on our life. We'll pipe energy up there, we'll put up greenhouses up there, we'll create structures up there so that way we can have a cherry tree on the top of Everest. Which, again, is not working with the reality of the situation we find ourselves in. And so to bring this, again, all back to this idea of fear is that I'm 100% for having that fearful response, as we should, as I should, as everyone should. This is a serious situation. This is a situation that's going to take some time to sort out. Nobody knows how long it's going to take to sort out. I was listening to a podcast the other day, New York Times, talking about the hammer and the dance, that the hammer's locked down and the dance is going to be coming out and seeing what we can do and what we can't do and what kind of social distancing will Hmm. take effect in restaurants. Will we be sitting six or 10 feet apart? You know, what will be those those mechanisms? Mm -hmm. But all of that said, the most important conversation here is we are having a reprieve of society as, not quote, not normal, but society as we know it. Mm -hmm. And we've had some experiences of some really incredible things, things like seeing what a universal basic income looks like, seeing what can happen when we give healthcare to all, seeing what happens when we start to reduce the amount of consumption we have. We've had some real reality checks here. And to go back to to life as usual, life as normal, which is usually a fear-driven conversation, which is how most people get roped into the corporate capitalist world in some way, shape, or form. And I know I have as well, to a certain extent. Allowing that fear to be felt, to subside and go, what about this was amazing? What about this really worked? What about this has worked for our society and our culture? And what do we want to do next? Holding at the same time, the fear, the grief, and the utter loss of life and the utter loss of, of, of humanity that has happened at this time, and yet still holding the biggest question possible of what do we want our lives to look like after this? Yeah, there's, there's no question that there's, there's basically no chance of going back to the normal that we knew pre-COVID. And you think about it, that was only five or six weeks ago, a lot of us were uh, you know, maybe aware that there was a virus spreading throughout China. We'd maybe over the Christmas holidays seen some stuff on social media about these uh, emergency hospitals being constructed in the Wuhan province. And I know for myself, I naively at that point still thought, well, that's terrible that that's happening over there, but had no clue that it would ever, I, I didn't even you know, realize that it would be something impacting my life individually only a couple months later to such an extent. So we are um, supremely naive as a species and we, we have a difficult time having that 30,000 foot view of uh, the future and being able to objectively and rationally uh, make decisions based on what the ultimate good is going to be rather than what is what is going to serve me and right now. And that's made even harder when you're living from hand to mouth, don't own a refrigerator, maybe eight or 10 people living in a small home in, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or India or Indonesia. And all of a sudden you're told that you can't leave your home. So at some point it's, uh, 
you know, I, I keep reminding myself that I have to kind of check my privilege and I, I, like you, am choosing to try to stay focused on the positive as much as possible. I'm seeing uh, incredible benefits uh, come my way in terms of the time that I'm spending with my wife and kids, um, the recalibration of priorities and uh, just slower pace of life. Uh, all there's, there's a lot of things like that that are, I think are real real benefits. But I'm continually reminded that um, there are billions of people on our planet right now that don't even have the luxury of uh, taking the time right now during all of this going on to really reflect uh, on on life or to to get metaphysical and and um, and ponder, you know, the meaning of life and and think about um, how this might uh, shift their beliefs or uh, their priorities and actions and behaviors. They're literally just trying to survive, you know. Uh, and so I think that's where uh, real uh, effective and strong leadership comes in is that we have uh, the fate of humanity resting in such a small number of hands when there are so many of us that will be impacted. You know, we've, we've had this exponential, uh, I don't think anyone's spent this much time looking at logarithmic graphs and exponential curves and, and uh, bell curves and things. And people are starting to <laughs> wrap their hands, their minds around what, uh, what all of that means. But, you know, in, it's only in the last uh, hundred years that we've, our, our population of our species has just exploded much like a virus, really. Like we, the irony to me is that we are the ultimate virus on this planet. And you have a, a, such a small number of people that are making decisions that will impact through these policies, through developing, you know, how many people are going to be directly responsible for creating a couple of vaccines that billions of people will um, be injected with over the next couple of years? I, if we're lucky and you, you know, if, if the whole fate of humanity rested in my hands individually, we'd be screwed or your hands or any, any one, one or two people. But so luckily we have experts in science and luckily we have experts in the field of medicine and in the field of economics and the field of politics. Um, but we, we do place an, uh, an extreme amount of trust in the the few people that are kind of steering the ship. And something I want to challenge, and I continually challenge myself and, and, and certain parts of me that feel this way, is that humans are a virus, uh, an equation that we are the we are a virus instead of the reality, which is we can act like a virus. We can also act like a symbiotic organism, as we have for thousands of years mm -hmm. we've we've acted as a part of the ecology that has has created us and i think it's easy to i've seen a lot of posting about this you know this is mother nature's revenge this is karma mm. and you know at a certain level you know i'm part of um i'm part of a little giggle group and we share memes and and jokes and stories about covid19 and it helps us uh it helps us normalize and create some conversations around these areas it's not something I share publicly, which is really important. And I think this idea of what we share publicly and what we share privately is 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 paramount because all of us, if we have a voice, 
if we're able to amplify that voice, there are people who are listening. And what we say and how we say it impacts them in a very profound way, probably more than we will ever understand until years later when the entire self-absolved culture with social media and Instagram and TikTok and all these things has really understood how a single idea is placed in a certain place and disseminated. There was uh, the polio vaccine, and until Elvis got it on television, it was it was nominal. It was under 10%. And once Elvis got it on television, 80% of the public got it in the U.S. Wow. There are moments where we can influence each other rapidly. And so when we pull back from there and we really see that, it's important to understand how we operate and what we say and how we do it, is that we have to be careful of what we share. We have to be careful how we program ourselves with language. And while I, for a number of years, was humans are a virus, we need to we need to stop this. That eventually gets to some terministic thinking. There, there's an endpoint of that which is not potentially compassionate or loving at all. Mm-hmm. The opposite side of that is humans can be as positive as they are negative, and we know this to be true. We've lived in symbiosis with the planet, the animals, and the plants here for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. It's only recently that we've really started to divert off course. So the real question in my mind is, how do we act as beneficial as we can act negative? How do we act as the most symbiotic element on this planet with the least footprint, with the most amount of conversation, being aware of the things that we want and the things we need? being aware of the things that are necessary in our lives and being aware of the things that aren't. And at the same time, do we take the powers that we have invested with our trust? And as Toby Hemingway, uh, a friend and an amazing permaculturalist said, do we take those power contracts that we have given over to a few, Hmm. do we pull them back at times and say, you have not proven yourself (laughs) to be trustworthy with the control of the people? Do we say this is not this is not able to be taken right now and we do not subscribe to your authority as as number of people have done throughout society? And then when we do that, do we then offer up something in its place? This is one of the first times where we're seeing uh, things that those on the far right have been saying is you can't do it or you end up you're going to end up in communist Russia if we take care of people and give people a basic income. We've shown that's not true. Every single experiment that I've read about basic income shows that individuals are more motivated to work, they take better care of their children, they take better care of their community, they act more in the common interest because it feels like the common interest is acting in them. When you take a look at village models of indigenous populations the world over, it's a very similar process. It's a very similar back and forth. What we've realized is that our lives are based on fragile, fragile systems with single points of failure because we haven't emulated nature. And we are ecology. This is what I think everyone has forgotten. We are ecology. Hmm. It created us. Its patterns are our patterns. Its principles are our principles. We can take intense moments of stress for short periods of time, no problem. It's called weightlifting. We can build more weights. We can have toxicity enter into our, our body over time, you know, a little bit, which to our body is still a huge amount. And we can build up dependency we can build up resiliency if we take low amounts of stress for long durations of time that can sink an organism quicker than anything or reduce its functionality or reduce its immunity which we're seeing with a lot of the ways we eat how we operate the amount of exercise we get all the things that naturally we would have before quote-unquote society and the industrial revolution 
those were necessary for humans to be human. So when we take a look at this idea of, of, of viral humanity, sure, many of us has, have acted that way. And if we do pull the lens way back and we take a look at humanity as a whole, we've acted, our behavior has been like a virus. But in the same way as you, as you correct um, you know, a, a friend or a child, you talk about their behavior. You don't talk about them. It is not them that is doing it. It is their behavior. And so we pinpoint the behavior to then change the behavior. And I think that's what we're really eligible for now. Mm. What are the behaviors that help to create this situation? What are the behaviors that have helped to create further uh, autoimmune issues? What are the behaviors that haven't supported life globally, locally? And let us apply the incredible wealth of human ingenuity to those problems to actually create a better society. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I was just listening to an interview um, between Vic Mirage and uh, the uh, chief of the Deneta nation. And he was speaking about the Deneta wanting to uh, go back to living on the land as a, re- as a response to the COVID crisis, because mm. uh, they felt that their, their elders felt that um, that they had the tools and the wisdom in within their people, within their nation to uh, live in harmony with with nature, and that that would be the safest and most stable and most secure uh, way for them to kind of ride out this storm. And um, I, I thought that was such a beautiful and inspiring message: is to be reminded that you know we, we've been we've been here for for tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years in harmony with nature. It's wired into our DNA to know how to do that. And even though on an individual basis, many of us have lost the skills and the wisdom and the, um, the practical knowledge of how to, you know, start a fire with just a couple of sticks or how to skin a moose out in the bush. Um, I would be hopeless in one of those scenarios, but as a species, there's still something that's so deeply rooted within us that, knows how to commune with nature, knows what's right and what's wrong. And I, I kind of think I'm brought back to um, this idea that uh, in Jesus's teachings, and this is something I shared with you, I think by email before we set up this conversation, that throughout, um, throughout the Bible, Jesus uh, talks about, you know, loving your enemy as yourself and all these wonderful lessons. But the the one single thing that is repeated in, uh, in his own words, more frequently than any other phrase is, uh, do not be afraid or fear not. And I, and I, I'm, you know, I, I wonder at what his meaning was behind that. And maybe there was several lessons that tie into the, uh, the encouragement to not be afraid. But I think one of them is probably just this, uh, fundamental, fact that, you know, you don't, we don't need to be scared when we are a part of that universal energy that has created life, that it's, it's, it's given us, uh, the life that we have and we're, we're connected to that fabric and you could, you can call that God, or you can call it the, the, the cosmos, the infinite, uh, energy of all that is, you can call it love. Um, but I think that, remembering, remembering that that is what we come from and that we're still connected to it, um, 
even in our, our digital age and our with our reliance on technology and and everything else, uh, it's it's still there. And like you said, what are the behaviors that can bring us back to living in balance? Well said, well said. And I think for anybody, you know, your audience is definitely um, more of the religious types. But for anybody who isn't, if if you hear good thoughts from individuals, you can still take them in. And anybody who says fear not or do not be afraid and says it enough so that way years later their words are canonized and created in such a way that that becomes the most um, most offered phrase. One need not be religious or need not um, be inclined towards Jesus Christ or any other feature to hear those words and have effect, to go, mm-hmm. if somebody said this enough that it survived this long, that's a really interesting conversation. That's an, that's an interesting data point. I've been rereading a lot of, um, a lot, reading and rereading science fiction as of late. I find that it helps me to sleep. I, I read something that has nothing to do with anything in the world, and it helps me to overwrite the thoughts of the day and to have really deep, restful sleeps, and sometimes really amazing dreams. So it's a <laughs> you know, win-win. But I've been rereading Dune by Frank Herbert, uh, this epic saga of years in the future humans have have said no to thinking machines have invested in their own evolution and and there's a sect of of uh humanity that's become um has pre has almost precognition and prescience and has a lot of sort of mystic things and they there's this there's this litany of fear that keeps running through um all of the books and comes to me a lot and i i thought i'd read it because i thought it might might help to support, you know, from both sides of it, you know, here's Jesus and here's a science fiction writer. And I'm sure we could pull up, you know, two, four, five, ten dozen other examples about how humans have been dealing with fear since time memorial. In some situations, it's been very helpful. And in other situations, it has been, as we're going to talk about, the mind killer. It's the thing that can bring total annihilation and obliteration. And it's really important to know which is which. So if if it's okay, I'll read it for you here. Yeah, absolutely. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Wow. That that's really powerful, Javin. What when you read that um, before drifting off to sleep one night? What did that mean for you? It reconnected with this story that I've been having actively with people that I've been having in my own head as I read things. Is that any investment in fear outside of that initial spark to take action? is going to result in total obliteration. Mm. It's going to be that little death, the mind killer. Mm-hmm. Any approach to feel that fear move through and past you and to look past it and to realize that you are now standing where fear stood and you're looking at yourself going, I can make a garden. I can shore up my water supply. I can diversify my income. I can change the way that humanity looks at the world. Any of those moments, because you have the rational mind to do it, are going to be very useful as opposed to continually staying in a fear-based response. Mm-hmm. And that's where 
great thinkers, and I, I put science fiction writers who create these epic novels that you know run 40, 50 years of their life in that category because they've thought deeply about something for a long time. Oh, absolutely. They've really thought, you know, if if we're going to evolve, what's going to be a core tenant, probably a sect of society that really focuses on purging fear about controlling emotion, about being present to the emotion that comes up, but choosing wisely about being sovereign. Hmm. And, and that has gone through my mind so many times since I've been rereading this series, reading the series and then rereading because I've realized Frank Herbert and his son and then other people have, have just built so many books off this universe that we're talking about the same things over and over and over again. So at what point, and maybe we don't, maybe that's the point of humanity is to constantly reinvent and rediscover and reshare and see if we can't come back to a certain level of understanding that supports life. Because my experience has been fear-based reaction, fear-based living doesn't support life. In fact, it supports this idea that there's only the I, the me. Mm -hmm. And when we do operate from a place outside of that, we don't. Yeah. We see each other. Really, the only power that's available uh, in in that scenario is power over versus power with. And one uh, a phrase that uh, our minister here, Robin King, uh, has frequently repeated is that Jesus was all about power with God. Uh, God is about power with people, not power over people. It's not about domination, but about um, connectedness, right? Connection. And so I, I can really see all of this whole conversation kind of coming together um, through that idea that when you flip your lid, when you're uh, f- frozen in, in fear, um, you really don't have, you've given away your power and you can't, um, you can't make a, a powerful decision uh, when you're, when you're in that state. So um yeah, I, I mean, I th- I th- there is so much more we could continue to explore and unpack <laughs> with this, Javin, and it probably calls for a follow-up episode before too long. But um, I really love the point that we've come to here, and maybe it's a natural kind of uh, closing point, but is there anything that you would like to to just uh, extend to listeners or to offer up as uh, as final thoughts? I think the the only thing that's outstanding for me is a tool I reach for a lot in the life design work and the emotional work mm. is this tool called Voice Dialogue, which was created by two psychoanalysts, Hal and Citrastone. And it's a consciousness model. It's about building more consciousness and more sovereignty. And the first step, and I've I've done this with a number of, of clients on both sides of the land and life design, and they've had really good effect with just this one tool. So I'll share this one tool, and if anybody ever wants to go deeper into voice dialogue or call me up to explore it, I'd be happy to, or find somebody local. But it's this idea of when we're having an uh, emotional reaction, where when we have flipped our lid, is to realize that's predicated by a story, a pattern, a part of ourselves, a part of ourselves that's worried about enough, a part of ourselves that's worried about being seen, about mm-hmm. being safe. And that when we have that moment, if we can just take a moment, instead of saying, I'm scared, instead of saying, I'm worried, we can take a moment to say, a part of me is scared, a part of me is worried. We're creating a little break in separation. Mm. We're creating a little break, a little separation, a little awareness to then go, interesting. I wonder what that part is scared about Mm -hmm. and what is producing that fear. Because 
you know, bets to bones for most of us in North America, it's, it's something else. It's not just the fact that you live in a place with 25 people and self-isolation isn't even a possibility. It's that there's another piece, there's another emotional state that needs to be addressed. And I would argue that Maslow's hierarchy of needs needs to be updated and emotional intelligence and dealing with our own emotions and dealing with the emotions of others needs to be put in there. I'm seeing it across the board with clients that are calling, uh, dealing with some pretty heavy emotions that they've never really had to deal with because they've never been quarantined or self-isolated mm-hmm. with their family. Mm-hmm. And so just that one moment, that one little tool of super happy, super sad, being in a state that you feel you're not choosing but is choosing you, just saying, interesting, a part of me is frustrated, sad, fearful. I wonder what what that is about and following that can lead to incredible places of sovereignty and being able to respond instead of react. I love that. It's, it's kind of a, um, the distinction is, fear is happening versus I am scared. Like as soon as you phrase it as I am X, you're defining yourself as that thing or that feeling or that emotion rather than just something that's moving through you. It's temporary. You're going to deal with it. It's not who you are. It's not, um, it's kind of like the, you know, as we, uh, talk to kids about, you know, that was a bad choice, not you're a terrible kid. Uh, you're, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you're a bad boy, you're a bad girl. And uh, those of us who, uh, you know, people who have heard that expressed, you're a bad boy, you're a bad girl, that those are often deeply rooted traumas that, that mm-hmm. they carry with them their entire lives because they mm-hmm. created a story that, oh, I, I'm, I'm bad, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. But yeah, when you can break that cycle or break that uh, bond between a feeling or an emotion or a, ment- a temporary mental state is just, it's happening versus it is you, then that's freeing. Mm-hmm. It's space. It's space to make a better choice. Mm-hmm. And when we have that space, we can then make a, a, a new choice and potentially we can reintegrate that part with ourselves. Cause at some point that part was very useful. Uh, whatever created that part, whatever created that story, that was a really useful part that kept, young Ben safe or happy or mm-hmm. self-aware or validated. It kept young Javin happy, self-aware, validated. But at some point, young Ben and young Javin became not so young Ben and not so young Javin. <laughs> Tell and me about it. We, we, we grew up and we don't need all those parts operating in all the ways they have. And so this process, a part of me helps to start that conversation. And out of all the tools I've experienced over my years, and this this is nice. This actually bookends the entire um, the entire episode because you started with this. Voice dialogue is the tool I reach for the most. Mm-hmm. It's the tool that when a friend of mine called last night and was in tears uh, because they've just they've kind of lost the thread. We went through voice dialogue. We explored the parts of them, the stories of them, the patterns of them, and the only thing we did it's it's non pathologizing. It's non diagnostic. Diagnostic. It's not therapy. It's just exploration. It's just curious. Well, mm. what's that about? And what's this? And it's getting a sense of the circuitry pathway. You know, the things that created those parts of you, how they operate, and now that you know about them, making a different choice. Going, oh, I feel that coming up, and I'm going to meet the needs of that part right. another way because. Little Ben still exists in you. Little Javin still exists in me. And sometimes we can get separation from them with time and exercise and other things. But doing it actively is is almost a superpower. Yeah, I've certainly experienced that. And 
I know you'll agree that um, just encouraging people that maybe haven't done a lot of that type of work, that even though it's scary and it can be um, confusing, it can be terrifying, uh, you can really get lost in your own head. Having someone that can help you through some of that conversation is so powerful. It is so enlightening. And often, once you've uh, kind of un- uncovered some of that stuff um, newly, then the next time it, it rears its head or, or triggers you, it's so much uh, easier to to access it again. And of course, it's going to happen again and again and again. But you're able to to reaccess it and reaccess it after you've done that really hard work and the heavy lifting of the initial um, exploratory work and mining for that gold, right? Mm, mm. Yeah, well said. Well said. It becomes easier and easier. It's a practice. It's a training. Mm-hmm. It's something that what you have as a tool, and I just said this this morning because I've been doing some video work for uh, voice dialogue, is it feels like the cross-country skis of uh, inner reflection and emotional work. Once I have it, I can go as far as I want <laughs> because it's a tool that works with or without somebody facilitating. Mm-hmm. The more I'm facilitated, the better I become. And I, I get facilitated anywhere between you know zero, <laughs> as has happened a few times this, this, this past five weeks, and up to six times a week because of its value. Mm. I I give that much value to this because I'm that much better of a human afterwards. So I'm not saying this is the only way. I'm not saying this is the only tool, but it is a very important tool. And if you work with it or work with another tool to build emotional sovereignty, it's well worth the time and effort. Mm. It's definitely something we can use a lot of um, as individuals, families, businesses, um, you know, countries uh, as a species. We're we're being, I think, tested a little bit and have an opportunity to really pivot and uh, grow as as humanity and and write a future that is uh, is based in love and is compassionate and is balanced and is uh, brighter than maybe what the default might have been on the course that we've started to to kind of find ourselves on these last uh, this last century or so and. Um, I, I overall feel really optimistic and I sense your optimism. I cherish it and, and acknowledge you for it. And uh, thank you for sharing that energy and your optimistic and bright thoughts with us and some of these tools and kind of practical things as well. Um, and just want to thank you, Javin, for coming on the podcast again. And It's always a pleasure to to explore some of these uh, difficult and deep questions with you. Thanks so much for the invitation and thanks so much for what you do, Ben. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks again for coming on. It was, yeah, this was awesome. Um, So, and thanks everyone for listening today. I hope that everybody got lots out of this conversation and uh, I know Javin and myself did. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch with Javin, Javin, do you want to just direct people to the best way to learn more about your work or get in touch with you if they're interested? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, allpointsdesign.ca. And if you're looking for the life design, it's allpointsdesign.ca forward slash life. And if you want to reach out direct, it's javin at allpointsdesign.ca. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Javin. And uh, until we catch up again next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and keep uh, doing the important and wonderful work that you're doing. And take care. You as well. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Until next time on the Six Ways from Sunday podcast, take care, stay healthy, be well.